Welcome back to Rethinking Politics. We're here with episode 61. Before we get started, just a, a quick uh, update, FYI. I'm going to be out of town for a couple of weeks, going to the East Coast, and we we may not be able to record in that time. We'll, we'll update you as we get closer to that point, one way or the other, but it'll at least be, my guess is a week, maybe two weeks, where where we'll go dark or do a shorter episode or something. Just FYI. So today, Dan, we want to talk about Afghanistan one more time. Hopefully this is the last time, but but who knows. And it- Hopefully it's more times because more develops, that's good. <laughs> you never know. Generally when we talk about things, it's because something bad is happening. And that makes it so if we're talking about it, it's something unfortunate. <laughs> uh, how true that is, Dan. But you never know. How true that, that is. That may not always be the case. So, so it's a... Uh- it's still in the news, and you know one of the things that's being talked about there there are really two things. The one thing is you've got some generals who are testifying about what they actually recommended to to President Biden early on in the year about whether or not troops should be should be left in Afghanistan and things like that, which is not good for Biden, but that's not really what we want to talk about. What we want to talk about is the other part of the news which is about the Americans and others who are still left in Afghanistan, you know, these many, many weeks later. Um, Dan, you've got a, a CNN article about how lawmakers storm out of a Afghanistan briefing as these questions go unanswered. And there are, there are several articles like this talking about the frustration people have getting answers from the State Department, from the White House, about how many Americans are left in Afghanistan and what's being done to get them out. Yeah. And I'm glad that's being covered. It needs to be covered. And obviously the fact that there are still Americans who want to get out, who can't get out, is a serious problem. But the fact of the matter is, is that the Taliban is going to let those Americans leave. The Taliban has expressed an interest in working with the U.S. government, at least to some degree. In fact, in this article, it actually talks about talks about that. Here, here's a quote from it. Officials say it takes a tremendous amount of work talking about getting these Americans out, especially due to the coordination required between the U.S., Qatar, and the Taliban to do background checks on people who do not have all the necessary documents. So once again, the U.S. is actually using the Taliban to help do background checks and gather information on these Americans and basically outsourcing that part in Afghanistan, which, which, is, which is working with these U.S. citizens because once again, the Taliban has a vested interest in protecting its relationship with the United States. But there's one yeah. thing that's not being talked about here in such a crazy way that, that we're starting to question whether or not the goalpost has been moved. And that's all of the, the Afghans who, who helped the United States, who were promised protection, who were promised an opportunity to leave if things went south, who are still there. And that's not being discussed at all. You know, you know the, the State Department's talking about getting these Americans out as if that was their goal all along, was just to get the Americans out. 
And we've forgotten about the fact that, no, that's not just our only goal. Our goal is to get the Americans out. And then our secondary goal is to get out all of those who who directly aided the United States. And then I would say our third goal is to get out all of those who are in serious jeopardy with the Taliban moving in. So those are three different categories of people that each get successively larger. And and me and Dan are over here saying, for sure, we need the second group. And there's no reason not to push for the third group. And and the State Department and the White House are saying, no, we're we're struggling with the first group. You know, it's taking a long time to process so that we can get five or six or 20 U.S. citizens out at a time. And I just... It baffles me. Like I said, it's a, we're talking about a hundred Americans that the Taliban is actively helping us get out, and we're struggling with that. And we've completely ignored the fact that that we're leaving behind everybody else at this point. And now the only people who are working to get out the rest, everyone else besides the American citizens, are private private groups, non non government. Right. It, it's so odd. I mean, logistically, you say, what would it take to get to, <laughs> to learn about a hundred Americans and to fly them across the world? And what is it? What is the resource here, the scarce resource that the US government is lacking to perform this task quickly? Right. Yeah. How much coordination does it actually take between just three groups? You know, the US. Qatar, where I'm assuming they're flying to temporarily and then out, and the Taliban for, you know, about 100 people. Yes, yes. And this is people that the U.S. government is aware of and has the, has the paperwork necessary to say, we know these people are there. We expect them to leave, right? <laughs> Which is, if you, if you don't fit into that category, you're not counted in this group, and you probably, American or otherwise, are not coming home. Um, and it's just uh, I've heard a lot of people joking about it over the past couple of weeks. You know, like do we do we not own enough planes? Like what, what's the, do we not have enough enough people that can do the research and background checks? I mean, uh, the uh, I think of the average thriller movie, the average spy movie with the uh, the the large groups of FBI and CIA analysts, and you know, like, like these people couldn't put together all the information we know on these people quick enough for us to get them out in a more reasonable time. It's just odd. And, and as you said, that if, if, there's a, if there's a point at which this process is slowed down, it's no doubt they're on the ground with the Taliban trying to organize things. Well, and, 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 and I think part of the problem, if you read in this article, is that, is that there aren't flights leaving Afghanistan. Yes. I mean, period, in general. Like, I mean, I'm sure there are some, but it's not regular air traffic like you would have in another country that you can just put these people on board. This is a this is a country that's basically cut off from the rest of the world at this moment. Yes, and you'd have to you can and you can arrange. Obviously, the U.S. government could arrange things, but uh, but whatever they're able to arrange is going to be on the Taliban's terms. No, and that's and that's what the U.S. established. You know. What was it a month ago when they said, you know, we're going to have even when even when they still held the airport, they were yes. they were just doing it 
they they were doing it on the Taliban's terms. You know what I mean? They're like, we mm-hmm. we we will we will hold the airport, but you have to come to us. You know, we're not going to leave the airport. If you need help out there, you know, talk to the Taliban. It's <laughs> that sounds like sarcasm. No, it's not. It's not. So <laughs> it's not. <laughs> so um, Barry Weiss in her podcast, honestly. She she tells a story of uh, of Rahima, who was someone who actually escaped. So she was a an um, Afghan citizen, or Afghani. Afghani. I'm, if I'm, I, I can't. I don't know. Now you've got me unsure of which one's which. I think it's Afghani, but it's it's probably just... Afghani. And I've been saying Afghan, <laughs> which is a kind of rug. I think. Um, anyways, an Afghan, <laughs> no, isn't an Afghan, an Afghan rug, right? And it's an Afghani as in a, a an person it's who lives in Afghan. Afghanistan. Clearly we need to take a side class on knitting or whatever you use to make these rugs. And, and I, I don't uh, think it's knitting. I don't know what it straight. is though. Maybe it is knitting, <laughs> but that's, we're getting, we're getting, we're getting lost here. <laughs> Rahima is a citizen of Afghanistan who is a who is a teenage girl who was going to a who was actually in a in a school being taught by American citizens which is of course why she was able to get out because she had contacts and and she actually made it out during that that massive airlift that that was all over the news right towards the very end right before the airport was shut down and they talk about the six or seven times that she tried to leave unsuccessfully before she was eventually able to leave and and this is someone who's got you know contacts she has you know her her teacher in the United States was was contacting congressmen actually contacted individual soldiers at the airport and that's eventually how she was able to get out was they actually had a marine i think it was a marine it was a soldier on their believe it was on their time off so not while they were active duty well obviously they're active duty not while they were on shift but once their shift was over on their own time they left the base found rahima and, and the rest of her small group and brought them back to the to the airport and that was the only way they were able to get out yeah, you say she was trying to get out six or seven times. She went to the airport and was never able to get into the airport. Six or seven times. Six yeah. or seven times for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it was, uh, sometimes it was mobs of Taliban soldiers well, between her and the airport well, gates. Well, not. I mean, you say mobs of Taliban soldiers, but those mobs of Taliban soldiers were there at the U.S. government's request. So what the U.S. Yeah. government did, and they talk about this, that's part of why I brought it up, is that the U.S. government actually outsourced the uh, the checkpoints to the Taliban. So it wasn't that the, the Taliban was just hanging around the airport. No, they were working for the U.S. government to check people's information, and which is so weird. Which is, which is, which is so weird. That's part of what I was talking about when I said, you know, now it's just about U.S. citizens. And I think part of the reason that the U.S. government's changed their tone is because the Taliban is no longer allowing non-U.S. citizens to leave. And so, and so there's, and because we've decided that we're going to use the Taliban as our only source of 
of anything in Afghanistan, whatever the Taliban says is is what the U.S. government has done. And that's what we've seen time and time again in this withdrawal is the U.S. government is acting like a... Uh, like an equal of the Taliban. You know what I mean? The Taliban is our equal. They're a they're not an ally, but they're not an enemy. They're this weird this yeah. weird middle group, you know what I mean, where they're yeah, we're not in a position to make demands. That's what it is, exactly. We're we're in a position which is what you, yeah, which is what you're implying by by equal. We're in a position where we have to negotiate, we negotiate yeah, with them. We need to negotiate and, to get small small things. It's it's, I'd say it's similar to how we negotiate with, say, North Korea. You know, North Korea, we don't make demands. We're, we're very careful and, and we're very polite and courteous because they have nuclear weapons and they're crazy. I mean, that's, that's the U.S. <laughs> policy towards North Korea for a long time is we think North Korea is awful, but we would never tell them that because they've got nukes and we don't know what they're going to do with them. Yeah, except through the accepted... Uh economic ways of the the sanction system and things mm-hmm. that we we occasionally will will mm-hmm. do things there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. no and and so it's it's crazy it's crazy that that we've reached this point and it's even crazier that that it's not that it's not talked about about the fact that that we're leaving people behind there are some people who are talking about it you know we we got an article from the wall street journal talking about these siv applicants and that's uh now i can't remember the exact acronym but it's uh special immigrant visas and they're these visas that are issued for oh it says afghans here dan so so clearly they are afghans not just not just the rugs There you go, Afghans. Um, No, you're right, and and uh, these these SIVs, as you're saying, um, they're as a broad category. Lots of people have been able to get them, but then there's special things uh, for Afghans and Iraqis. And let's explain what they are. Yeah, they're 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 visas. So specifically within Afghanistan, they're they're special visas for those who have worked for or worked for a company or worked directly for the U.S. government in Afghanistan at some point while the U.S. has been here, and they have to have worked there. There's a certain number of requirements. They have to have worked there for a year, and which, which seems logical. But basically, it's what we were talking about before, that the promise was made, you help us, and we'll get you out. And the, the SIV program is supposed to be, is supposed to be honoring that, that promise. But there are some, some serious serious problems with this with this um with this program first of all during that that massive airlift the wall street journal estimated that around 700 siv holders were able to make it out so afghans who had helped the u.s government in some way were able to make it out and you may be thinking 700 that's pretty good well obviously there were more than 700 afghans who helped the united states at some point during this process. And sure enough, thousands and thousands of people have applied for this for these immigrant visas and and they've allocated a certain number of um they just recently added eight thousand more visas authorized at the end of July because of what was happening. So they increased the number of visas that were going to be available to to an extra eight thousand on top of a uh, um, many thousand that had already been allotted 
which is all good, right? You know, you want this. I mean, it's not even it's not even good. It's just doing what we said we would do, right? You know, in in my opinion, this is the bare minimum is is right. these SIV applicants getting them out. But instead of having gotten thousands out, we've gone around 700 out. So why haven't we gotten more out? Well, there's a number of problems. The first problem is that the paperwork, the bureaucracy aspect of it, is an absolute nightmare. Um, Dan, you were talking about um, some of the things that you need yeah. to, to file yeah, an SIV application. Yeah. yeah, so... Uh you mentioned the one you've got to be employed for at least a year, but that's, that's not what's important. What's important is that you can verify it, right? It's one thing to be employed for a year. It's another thing to be able to verify it. And to do that, you have to be able to get a, uh, a letter of recommendation. Um, that specifically is written by. Yeah, it looks like you should. You need a letter from Let's HR see. from your employer, Pull up the terms real quick. and you need a letter of recommendation from your uh, senior, from your direct senior supervisor. Yes, yes. So the verification from your HR. Imagine you worked at a company there in Afghanistan that evaporated, and the people, a lot of the people who worked there who are still there, have gone into hiding. Mm -hmm. The U.S. contacts have left. You're now in a position where you need to get a letter of recommendation from the HR department. Then you need a letter of recommendation or evaluation from your direct senior supervisor or the person currently occupying that position or a more senior person. Um, I've heard stories of Afghanis trying to find phone numbers and contact information for military officers or uh, related contractors who are gone and the numbers they have don't work, and they're trying to find where they went. They're trying to find how to get a hold of them. Mm -hmm. What they have is a name. They may or may not have the full information of the person required for to look them up through the military. And, uh, and they need to somehow find this person and get a letter of recommendation from them in the hopes that they remember them, right? And like, like a letter of recommendation is already a difficult thing. And if they can't get that, then they can get one from someone who works for the company who is an Afghan citizen. And, uh, and then co-signed by a U.S. citizen. And then co-signed by a U.S. citizen who's part of that program. Again, it, it's just which is, your which military sounds guy like, is gone. Which sounds like <laughs> it's, a, it's a compromise, but in many ways that's not better because if they worked for the same company that you worked for, that means that they're going to be hunted by the Taliban just like you, which is why you need to get out, which means how are you going to find them? Unless you happen to, you know, to live next door to them and you can go check to see if they're still in hiding there, what options do you have to contact them? Yeah, then a completed form of the non-migrant visa application, uh, some biographic data, um, a state of threats you received as a consequence of your employment with the U.S. government. Uh, to put all of this together and to then get it processed is, is truly for most of the people there an impossible task. They can't find these people. Well, and, and, and then of course, Dan, if you complete this process, you know, then what? Yeah. yeah then what? So I'm, I'm, I'm looking here on, on the government website, you know, what happens after I submit my documents? Well, they're going to, you know, they're going to collect and review your documents then once they've deemed that the packet's complete, they're going to evaluate it by this different group. It's the approval step. 
staff, and then a recommendation will be forwarded to the U.S. Embassy in Kabul. There is no U.S. Embassy in Kabul, Dan. Then the U.S. Embassy in Kabul is going to review your case. And then if approved, a letter will be sent to you via email with instructions on how to send your application and a Form I-360 immigrant visa petition to the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services in the Nebraska Service Center. This system was clearly designed to operate while we were still in, in Afghanistan. This program, right? And this program right. was instituted a while ago, so it makes sense, right? Right. But it has not adapted to the change in Afghanistan at all. Um, going back to, to Barry Weiss's episode, the um, Rahima, this, this, this girl who's trying to get out, she was already well into a student visa application when, when, this, when all of this went down. Right. And um, and so she had already started a process, not this process, but a different process to get a visa. And she had contacts in the United States. You know, she had contacts in Afghanistan. And of course, the contacts she had in the United States were were well connected. Which was why she was able to get out. But even then, it was a massive struggle. It was a massive struggle. And that's for someone who was who was, you know, in a really a best case scenario, someone who could get a hold of people in the United States. And and they talked to to uh, her teacher, Esther, who was organizing this grassroots movement to get people out. And I was wondering, well, what is she doing to get people out? Well, what she yeah. was doing was she was organizing all of these people and these connections to help them process the paperwork so that the U.S. would let them leave. They, that was the biggest hurdle that they yeah. were dealing with was United States bureaucracy more than anything else. After right. Rahima finally, after six or seven attempts, makes it onto the airport, she then has to wait hours because they have to finalize her visa. And the only way they're able to do that and the only way she's able to leave is they actually get a hold of a congressman who strong arms that visa through. Because the traditional process, even though even though she, there was no reason she shouldn't be approved, it was just a matter of too much time, too much paperwork, too much processing that she would have never actually left the country in time for it to have mattered. And that's where so many of these SIV applicants are, is they're still in Afghanistan because for one re reason or another, they didn't have all of those connections and opportunities that Rahima had and were not able to get out. Yeah. And so now it's not enough to have the right information. You have to have the things necessary to strong arm and navigate the bureaucracy, which is the resource to process the paperwork, as you were saying, and to apply pressure where it's needed to speed things along. Because now if you're stuck, if you're still in Afghanistan and you're, you're an applicant for this visa pr program, as you've said, to finish that visa application is basically impossible. But let's say you do. Let's say you do finish that whole process. That in no way guarantees that the government, that the U.S. government is going to get you out because the U.S. government is not focused on getting you out at this point. All they're yeah. concerned about and struggling with is getting out U.S. citizens. Yeah. And yes. it reminds me of uh, of this amazing quote from from Douglas Adams, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, talking about bureaucracy, and he's he's talking about this uh, 
this bypass was going to be built in his home. And they said, oh, well, well, well there were plans. You know, you should have heard about it. And, they, and this is quote, end quote. But the plans were on display. On display, I eventually had to go down to the cellar to find them. That's the display department. With a flashlight. Ah, well, the lights had probably gone. So had the stairs. But look, you found the notice, didn't you? Yes, said Arthur. Yes, I did. It was on display in the bottom of a locked filing cabinet, stuck in a disused lavatory with a sign on the door saying, Beware of the Leopard. <laughs> I thought that was hyperbole when I, when I first read this book. But, but we have come full circle here. And this is no longer science fiction. This is no longer exaggeration and, and satire. <laughs> this is just the reality. Okay, if you can complete this whole visa process, you know, we'll go go ahead and, and, and send it to the embassy and and we'll go from there. You know what I mean? It just doesn't it just it yeah. doesn't it, it's nonsensical, right? And of course people will respond and say, Well, yes, but this wasn't designed for this system. And I say, Yes. So you need a new system. You 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 need a new a new visa program, a new pathway for these people, and you could do that. That's possible. To argue that it's impossible to create a new pathway uh -huh. is is wrong. I mean, a lot of time has passed since the Afghanistan crisis was clear. It's been a long time since the Taliban took Kabul, and ever since that happened, we knew we would need a different system. As soon as that happened, you should have known you'd need a different system. But the fact of the matter is, is that, number one, the U.S. government is not going to throw away bureaucracy. If we've learned anything <laughs> from this Afghanistan struggle, it's that if the U.S. government has to choose between saving human lives and bureaucracy, it's going to choose bureaucracy. And then number two, they're not focused on it. They're not concerned. There is no huge public outcry to save the people who are still stuck in Afghanistan who aren't American. And so it's simply not a priority. And that's a serious problem. It is. I, this frustrates me. And, and Dan, to, I want to defend my statement because it was strong about choosing bureaucracy over human lives. But if you hear stories about, about that airlift and about the, the, the getting all these people out, one of the biggest problems you had was red tape. You know, you had people sitting on on airplanes for upwards of 20 hours waiting on red tape to leave. It's not like they didn't have fuel. Right. It's not like there or wasn't pilots. airspace. It's not like there wasn't pilots. It was red tape. Red tape upon red tape upon red tape. And that's for people who have made it through all of these other red tape processes to even get there. I mean, the red tape to get into the door to get onto the airport was extensive. There was so much red tape that could have been reduced, that could have been cut because it was a time of crisis and the U.S. was not willing to do that. It's, it's so frustrating to me to, to have watched and heard about this process. I don't know how the, the news stations can just stop worrying about the Afghanis who worked with Americans there, how we can just, just, turn that off. Um, it's, yes, you can't solve every problem in the world. Yes, you, you, uh, there is a limit to the reach of the resources that you have. And 
how you deploy them and in the, the line of, of using U.S. resources, primarily focused on U.S. citizens, all of that is fine. You, know, you, do, you I don't, <clears throat> you don't have to disagree with any of that to sit here and look at this and go, we not only did we really screw up, but it's much sicker than it looks on the surface. Um, as Brad was saying with the red tape, you had privately chartered flights, you know, things arranged by private people with full of people who have the proper documents, everything bought and paid for by donations. And you have the U.S. government saying, no, no, not this flight. And they go, well, what do we need? Well, you need this. And they, and they give them a bureaucratic runaround of impossible tasks that vary depending on who they're asking and that, uh, and that result often in flights not only being filled and ready and waiting, but never actually leaving. The people being told to get off and go. And there are, there are a number of these stories. Uh, Glenn Beck is a, is a really good source on this um, because he's part of his Nazarene fund. He's been, for some time, he's been involved, not directly himself. If you, <laughs> if you know his age and physical nature at this point, he's not, he's not going in undercover and evacuating anybody. No, but, but he is, I mean, he is directly But he involved. was there on I the mean, ground. Yes, I mean, it, yes. It's, it's become, it's become famous now that he wrote that letter to, uh, to the prime minister of Pakistan is that is that the official yes yes the- so let me yeah let me build that up a little bit because it's it's really interesting story so he ends up he ends up with with four planes that have been arranged partially through his organization and partially through others that are all working together mm-hmm. um, they have hundreds of people that they're ready to get out and the U.S. government comes in and says no later they've got other flights ready they're they're about to leave and they they fly into uh, what is the country's airspace? There's a variety of countries there that you can fly through. The difficulty with, with when you're flying out of a country, you need the permission of the countries, one of the countries at least around it, so you can fly through their airspace and not get shot down, right? You need, mm-hmm. you need some kind of coordination. Um, and the U.S. State Department had, in response to their flights, directly called this country and closed air travel from Afghanistan. They'd said, no, 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 these guys are not with us. They're not working with us. Don't let them use your airspace. Um, it's that red tape they, over human lives again. It's the, it's, it's something it's, it's red tape. Certainly that's the, that's certainly the surface of it. And, and I think you're right that a lot of the times it is just red tape. It's the, it's the observation of the rule in a circumstance in which it's ridiculous to do so. Um, in some cases, I think it's worse. I think it, I think it looks, it reflects poorly on the U.S. government if private citizens can arrange the escape of lots of people and the U.S. government can't seem to. I think the U.S. government has made agreements with the Taliban and as you indicated, that they're going to observe certain things and they are trying to enforce that same standard even on, even on private citizens, um, in a way that is disgusting, disgusting and harming and, and literally killing thousands of people. No, I mean, I mean, uh, I mean, what you're describing is just is just a betrayal of trust. I mean, it's it's a betrayal of promises to to the Afghan people that the United States made. Just Mm -hmm. straight Mm -hmm. up, if if Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, at that point, what you're describing is is turning those people over to the Taliban 
Because not only are you not going to get them out, but you're going to actively stop others who try and get them out. Yeah, they could get out and you're going to make sure they can't. <laughs> because, I mean, let's be clear, from the beginning, the United States could have gotten out whoever they wanted to. Yeah. As demonstrated by the fact that the Taliban couldn't do anything the entire time the United States was here. You know what I mean? And they tried. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And by right, here, I mean right. in Afghanistan, that the U.S. government is stronger than the Taliban. Let's not be confused here. It's not yeah, that they're not slightly close. stronger. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the small force we left in Afghanistan was more than enough of a deterrent against the Taliban. And we could have easily kept the airport in Kabul if that was our priority. We could have easily maintained a presence a presence in Afghanistan to get anyone out that we needed to, but we chose not to. Yeah. Yeah. Every variable in this in this story from start to finish is one we could have controlled. This was and not either chose not anyway. to right, right. And either chose not to and to seed it up to chance and the and the other powers or uh or deliberately are controlling in a terrible way. Um, and this is an example of that. So Glenn Beck and these organizations find themselves in a circumstance where they they don't just have to get in there and save people from the Taliban. They have to save people from the Taliban with without and and avoid the American State Department's ability to shut down flights and to control airspace and to and to do it. They're working against the US government to save these people. That's it's it's depressing at a level that rarely these politics is is as sick as so much of it is, really. This is this to me is on another level. Mm-hmm. Um so Glenn Beck finds himself in a position where he's been recommended by somebody, I'd be curious who this is and how they knew this, to write a letter personally to the Prime Minister of Pakistan. Pakistan is not historically a, uh, a bastion of freedom or a place that the U.S. has good relations with. But that's not actually important to this story, is it? Yeah, because I mean, the, the US, U.S. doesn't is... have bad relations with, with Pakistan. Yes. It's, 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 uh, it's like we were describing before, that, that neutral, you know, equal negotiations kind of situation with Pakistan. Yes, they have nuclear power. Um, and have for some time. They, uh, they have a interesting political makeup where they have a prime minister. Obviously, I've been using that term, right? That indicates some kind of parliamentary procedures, that uh, some kind of democratic elections, which is true, but they also have difficulties with the military where it's not clear the line between the military power and the elected officials. And, uh, and that makes them unstable in some ways that have been, that are obviously frightening. Um, Iran is another state with another government with a, not, not the same by any means, but uh, that, that makeup of the power between the military and the, the democratic officials is, is uh, gray and fluctuates. Um, so why on earth would a personal letter from Glenn Beck do anything? Well, somebody knew that the prime minister there listens to Glenn Beck, <laughs> which, is, which is just, I don't know how that happens. I don't know how that happens. Anyway, so Glenn Black writes a personal letter to him. It's public. You can actually find it online. And you can find public, the prime minister's response that I believe was written several hours later. When we say letter, I'm pretty sure it's digital letter here. This this point, no one's writing handwritten letters, especially not in an emergency. Three weeks later. Right. And the prime minister says, done. You can use our airspace. You can land if you need to. You will reserve some space for your planes and things. And 
and you can go through us. And so Glenn Beck and these others have been doing that. Um, there was another letter I heard about. I, I'm not familiar with the details on this one, apparently written by Dan Crenshaw to the, the military, to one of the generals that, that had some impact in Pakistan. Um, that he was a fan of Dan Crenshaw or <laughs> had some, some connection there. Um, it's interesting that people that you might have influence on across the world. And, uh, and this has allowed for more planes that are not showing up in the news uh, to take uh, Afghans out who are simply going to be killed or punished or enslaved by the Taliban. Mm-hmm. And uh, a number of like these, these should be public celebrations and they can't really be public celebrations in the U S because they're at the expense of the U S right They're They're working against the U S to do this. Yeah. I mean, if, if the U S government can't get out a hundred American citizens, but, but Glenn Beck and many other organizations like his working together can get out many more, you know, Afghans than that working without, you know, without help from the U.S. government, often, you know, directly against the U.S. government and without help from the Taliban and often directly against the Taliban. It just makes the U.S. government look incompetent and morally bankrupt. And that's not a that's not a good look. And it's a worse reality. I was about right. to say, as, as, I, as I hear more about what's happened in Afghanistan, the more, the more disgusted I am with, with the, the state of, of our, our government. Um, I think back to, uh, I don't know if you've ever watched West Wing, Dan. I haven't. The, the, the political show, but it's, it's, a, it's, about, it's a fictional story about, about you know the White House, right? You've got a president mm-hmm. and his staff, and he's you know he's a a, a fairly passionate left leaning you know Democrat who who runs and becomes president. So they're all they're all very liberal, right? Both the people who made the show and the characters in the show. But you watch that show and you respect that government by a time you're done watching West Wing and you say, you know what, this is a government that, that I could stand behind, even if I don't agree with them, because you can see how they're motivated to, to, to do what they believe is right. That's, that's not the world we live in today. And, and I don't want this to be a, a right or left issue because it shouldn't be, because this has nothing to do with the fact that, you know, Joe Biden is a Democrat. This has everything to do with the fact that the White House and the State Department are not like that fictional show made up of people who are just trying to do what's right at all costs. You know, you know, Dan said that it may be it may be malicious versus just the the honoring of bureaucracy and red tape overall, and that is absolutely a possibility. But regardless of the motivations of these people, the fact of the matter is, is that they are not acting out of good intentions and their results are far less than good. And it's hard to respect that government. It's hard to be proud to be an American when when our government is so clearly willing to, to abandon people 
and not just and then we're not just talking about people who are suffering we're talking about people who are directly suffering because of us you know those people who worked for the US government on condition that the US government would get them out and now to abandon them that's not a questionable practice that is just evil yeah yeah it's one thing to decide there's a third world country out there that's having problems and it's one thing to decide not to invade and to do all you know not to try and uh, to turn the country around and exactly. invest a massive amount of management. That's not what we're talking about. And it's an entirely different thing to have a problem you created and to stop private citizens from helping. Like that's it, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I I think uh, in so much of what we have said in the past about uh about immigration comes into play here. It it's much harder to go through this special program to get to the US, even in good times, let alone now when it's basically impossible for for most people. Um than it should be. And our what we, we've talked about in the past regarding immigration and how it should run, there is no reason these people shouldn't be able to come here. Now you can you can set up a world where you are distributing more resources than you're taking in and adding more people just bankrupts you. You could that's that's a country you could have. This is why socialists are are fundamentally against immigration. Theorists, your average socialist in the United States is, is pro-immigration, but they don't understand that that's not, you can't have both. If what you have is you have a hundred houses and you're going to distribute them among the people so that everybody has a house, you can't have more yeah, than a hundred people. you're playing this zero-sum game yes, of if central you're going to dis- creation yes. and distribution. If you're going to distribute finite resources, and the plan is you can, if you take from the rich enough, you can get enough to everybody so that they can have a lifestyle above a certain threshold, that threshold is going to get lower and lower and lower as you add people to it. Mm-hmm. And if you allow an infinite immigration, that threshold plummets until eventually it gets to virtually zero, right? Spreading the resources out, X amount of resources over more people. And it's just, it's basic math. This is why Bernie Sanders was against immigration until he realized he had to be for it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Until the political reality (laughs) changed his mind. Um, Because he can do math, or at least could back when he was a, where he is now, he's probably still more of an idealist than others. But anyway, not the point. You could create a, or you could create a system where these people could come and they could work for three or four dollars a day, or whatever, in, or whatever people what, were willing to pay. Whatever. Them. I mean, with with yeah. the the job shortage now, these people can come over here and start making fifteen bucks an hour, no problem. <laughs> I know, right? Most of these people speak English. Most of these people, or a lot of them, do at least, and a lot of them are. Uh, educated a lot of these people are the ones that lived in the cities in kabul and have lived a very modern lifestyle yeah i mean we're talking i mean Uh, specifically siv applicants by definition were were qualified to work because they were working for businesses that were working directly (laughs) for the u.s government right there there there's no yeah there wouldn't even be uh some long 
period of adaptation or some generational gap, probably. No, right? it, would, it, would it would be, be an easy transition. Be an easy transition. But you could you could set up the world in a way where someone can go from living in a hut in rural Afghanistan. Yeah, not living as a applicant, someone else. Yes, someone else. To living in the U.S. in some kind of building that would make your average American liberal shudder, but is much nicer than that hut, right? And make a fraction of the minimum wage, but is much more than what they were making there. And they could do that temporarily. Mm -hmm. Manufacturing something that America has never been competitive in for a hundred years because it's been regulated out of business. In a way that's cleaner and more safe and more friendly while they're getting an education and, you know, being taught English or whatever it may be. You can arrange this. You could, and, and it would benefit. You don't even need a government to do it. And you just need to let people come and tell them to figure it out. And, and you know what's so, what's so disturbing to me, Dan, as you're talking about that is the immediate rebuttal is op, is obvious and it's, it's really just one issue. It's optics. It's how does that make us look? You know, and in that's many ways, I think one of the biggest problems with Afghanistan is the U.S. government is stopping these, these private groups and they're, and they're doing all of these insane looking things because of optics. You know, they want to look, they want to look good. I mean, I mean, now the, the State Department is reaching out to these, to these, uh, to these non, non government organizations. Because they're they want to start being able to take credit for it, you know, because the, the the public tide is turning, and so two weeks from now, this is just my guess, a month from now, it's going to be, you know, the U.S. government working with these, you know, these non-government organizations are getting people out of Afghanistan. You know, that will be the official narrative all of a sudden. You know what I mean? Because of because of optics. And and with in regards to allowing large numbers of immigration and having these people living in what we would describe today in American terms as poverty isn't going to look good. And <laughs> and that's all that matters to, to I mean, because that's all that matters in politics. You know what I mean? The political system is built around optics. That's what it's always been built around. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you do or what you've done in the past. All that matters is that what people care about. You know what I mean? I remember, I remember the the debates between between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Not their debates, but the debates individual people would have. And one of the issues that came up was the the moral character of either of them, right? Of Joe Biden <laughs> or Donald Trump. And. I'm 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 fairly convinced that that neither of of these individuals is the most morally uh, upright individual and neither of them is the devil, right? But each side had their own narrative and their own optics about what the other person was and then all of a sudden all of the flaws and the moral defects of their of their candidate disappeared. And because that's the political world we live in, it doesn't matter what your candidate has or hadn't done. It just matters what you can make people believe. And it's just, it's just disturbing. It's just upsetting. 
It's gross. It is gross. It's it's something that you can do at a because the, you you can't get away with nearly as well at the local level if there's scrutiny. That's why why so much if more should be handled at lower levels. Anyway, what were you going to oh, say? Oh, because 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 the U.S. government doesn't want to have you know, I mean, what would they be described as? You know, shack cities full of immigrants. You know, who are working menial jobs and living in 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 the equivalent of shacks. They don't want those images being distributed to the world. They want our image of of our elite American yeah. citizens who who are who are the best of the best and living in the nicest cities. And they would rather have that than provide these incredible opportunities for these people. And at the same time, as those people are producing those resources for cheaper, that's benefiting everyone else in the United States. But those benefits aren't as valuable to politicians as the optics are, as the visual yes. of the apparent wealthiness of United States citizens, even if we could be wealthier by ignoring optics and just doing what's right for a second. Yeah, there, there is a transitionary level of poverty for the lowest level of people in the world who could come to the U.S., could contribute in a way that made them money, that made them more money than they were making now, put them in better living circumstances than they're living in now, that made entrepreneurs a profit as they're competing in, in fields, often often some that we'd compete in now, but others that we, we haven't been competitive in for decades, as I said, in a way that was safer and healthier for these people. It'd be, it would be better for the immigrants in every single way. And we would not allow it. It is, it is, that level of poverty is literally illegal in the United States. The houses they could live in would be illegal. The, the, the jobs uh, they would work would be illegal. The jobs they would work would be illegal. And it, it's just interesting. You could open immigration can, and I think morally should be a thing. I think it would be the greatest thing that the United States could offer to the world. And what's interesting is what would ruin it is exactly what you're saying. People would look at it and they would go, look at how terrible it is. Mm -hmm. Not knowing that it was better. It was better than where they were. And it would lead them to something better than they could have dreamed of in the circumstances. Yeah, and not knowing that if you talk to those individuals, they would be... They'd be so grateful. They'd be so happy with, with, the, with their situation. I mean, I mean, let's look at Afghanistan. Because what we're talking about here, you know, I described the three groups. You got U.S. citizens, those who directly helped us. Mm -hmm. And then everyone else who's going to suffer under the Taliban rule. And that third group is a humongous group, right? It's so much bigger than the first two because it, it, could, it could just theoretically describe the vast majority of people living in Afghanistan right at this moment, right? And most people would say there's nothing we can do about those people, you know? Let's, uh -huh. let, you know, the U.S. government saying just group one, just American citizens. And then there are others who are saying, okay, well, let's work on this second group. And then any of the third group we can get, but we know it won't be very many, right? Because uh -huh. of our immigration policy. But if we looked at it and changed it, we could easily absorb the entire nation of Afghanistan. You know what I mean? We could, yes. we could, yeah. we could grab every man, woman, and child. And just leave the Taliban to govern itself. 
<laughs> you know, militarily we have that power, and economically, as Dan's saying, we could absorb that easily. But it's just a matter of whether or not we're willing to do it. And what's amazing about that is it solves so many of the problems that we keep going back to. I mean, that we've talked about before in this podcast about what do you do with Afghanistan after being there for 20 years? The people don't want to be there. We're sinking, you know, we talk about economic costs, the, the, we're sinking trillions of dollars into this country over a 20 year span. How do we how do we maintain that? But then how do we also honor, you know, those people who have who have achieved better lives in the past 20 years because we were there and who are going to go back under Taliban rule if we leave? The answer is simple. We leave, but we take every single person who wants to come with us. You know what I mean? Every single person who wants to come to the United States and and work and live here are more than willing to do so. Right. And, and if the fear is, if you do that, these people will then vote in Sharia law or they'll vote in something else. Fine. Don't give them a vote. And I'm, I'm serious. Don't, don't let them vote. You say anyone, anyone who wants to take this off yeah, or come and work I, here. We're not you talking don't get about citizenship. You don't get a, yeah. You don't, you don't get a, there's, there's no immediate citizenship and maybe never citizenship. <laughs> Set yeah. that question aside. That's yeah, just give them, just give them a, a green card. Just give them a work visa. Yeah. It's not like they're That's coming they here want. because they'd be thrilled to death to vote for their candidate. Like that's like, they're, they're worried that they're not going to, the women are worried. They're not going to be able to go to school and out in public mm -hmm. and talk to the people they want to. Yeah. Like it's, it's the people in other countries and in and, and the countryside and things, they're worried that they're, that they're a week away from starving to death. And they're going to find food for, you know, as far in advance as they can. And sometimes it's just for that day. They're just, they're just looking for their next meal. It's, it, it's ridiculous to, and it's, it's ridiculous to think that they wouldn't assimilate if placed in the proper, uh, if they were given the actual serious opportunities instead of put together in a, in a kind of, uh, what's the word? A kind of, uh, welfare town where mm -hmm. they, uh, where the incentives you know, where... are set up to keep you there, which, yes. which might be what you think we're describing when we talk about changing the laws, but it's not what we're describing. And the difference is, is that, is that there are all the incentives to leave, you know, that that super cheap housing Dan's describing in the in the super cheap jobs, you come here, you come to the United States, you start working in those jobs, and then you realize all of the better opportunities that are out there. And as you develop more skills, you you reach out for those new opportunities. It's a natural progression that's not new that we're proposing here. It's something that immigrants have always done. You know, I mean, you can look at. You know, just recently, Hispanic immigrants, often illegal and even legal, who come to the United States, who are working low-paying jobs. You know, as you said, some of them are below minimum often wage. paid under the table. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then if they are able to achieve some kind of work visa, then they'll go and they'll, they'll find better jobs making more using the skills that they've acquired. And that's something that we could see, but much more streamlined and much more efficient. And 
it's so different from welfare because what welfare does is it actually encourages you to stay where you are, you know, because there are legal rules. You start making this much money and now you can't live in this housing. You know, you start doing this and now you you, you lose your your welfare, you know, and your your unemployment benefits, et cetera, et cetera. That's not what we're describing here. What we're describing is the exact opposite, where the fact that you're living in such inferior conditions will encourage you to get out of those and to move up. And that's why it would be transitionary. It would be temporary, not permanent. Right. And the fear that immigrants are somehow much worse than... <laughs> than... <laughs> Then the idiots we have here is uh <laughs> <laughs> Wow, Dan, that's that's harsh. But uh, no, seriously though, it takes it takes a certain to, to get to to arrive at a lot of the beliefs that that many Americans from both sides commonly believe you have to be you have to be many steps away from physical reality <laughs> and the the things you experience. If, if I had to guess which way people coming from these nations will end up thinking, assuming that they, that they are, uh, you know, that they, that, that someone connects what should be the extremely easy dots to say, here's why your life was terrible there. Here's why it's better here. If, if you can't sell that story, mm -hmm. if you can't, if you can't explain to them in, in ways that should be so self-evident, in a way that goes, there's something, there are some values here in America that are now mine. They've changed my life. That should be much easier to sell to them than to the, to, than to the privileged kids going to Ivy League schools, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. who, are, who are wondering what the point of existence is. Yeah, it's, it's those Imagine. privileged kids who are proposing that we throw out you know, the entire system and start from scratch. It's not first-generation immigrants in the United States. You know what I mean? Yeah, if you're if you're worried about about radical laws and and you know people are usually worried about you know extremely progressive policies, that's not coming from first generation immigrants almost ever. You know, first generation immigrants are benefiting from the system as it stands, especially if you open the door and allow them even more opportunity. They're not going to want to Instead of forcing them down. underground. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Instead of forcing them underground as we often do. No, yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. right now, yeah, people are concerned about, you know, the, you know, illegal immigrants, if they could vote, voting for Democrats. And it's like, yeah, well, those are the people who, who at least on paper, want to allow those people to, to work above the table. You know what I mean? To have visas, to, to be legally allowed to be here, of course they would vote for them. But that doesn't yeah. have to be that way. That's because you're you're choosing to force them under the table underground. And as long as that's your policy, of course they're not going to agree with you politically. But in many ways, they would otherwise. You know, immigrants do tend to be more conservative in just the classical sense of not wanting to change things because they're they're because they came here for what's here. Yeah, it's so it's so weird that we end up with the the party that represents that the xenophobic party is the party that that tacitly supports free markets, and the and the party that wants everybody to come and welcome, I have it are tend to be more socialist. Yeah, which is so, which would, truly should, is incompatible. You'd expect it to be the opposite. <laughs> it should be the opposite. You'd, you'd expect the, the conservatives to be like, hey, bring in everyone. 
and the liberals say no because we've got there's these welfare programs and we can't support that. Yeah, yeah. That if we if what we want to do is help the poor here, we can't distribute the funds that would go to them to people who are way poorer elsewhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's just basic math. Yeah, it, it's it's strange. It's a it's a mixed up world that's that's much more fueled by passion and uh, and traditions than any kind of. Uh, yeah, it's reason, it's, thought, or good economics. In many ways, I think that issue is one that it's just been a battle line. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. That and yeah, this is our side and your side, and we're going to duke it out because because it's all about this competition more than anything else. Yeah, where does that leave us? Um, couple things. Uh, honestly with Barry Weiss has got an episode we'll we'll post a link to that one talking about the story of Rahima and more information on that go ahead and listen to it at the end she mentions a couple of uh, a couple of uh, places that you can you can help those who are in Afghanistan um, Glenn Beck will post an episode or two um, as well as information about the the Nazarene fund that you can you can support to help those in Afghanistan. Um, and also just to gain more information about about the things we talked about and what's actively going on in Afghanistan because because our biggest takeaway here is the story is not over. The story is not just about those hundred Americans. there's there's much more going on that's that's not getting the full coverage that it deserves. so so please go you know go listen and and learn more about that because it is it's. It's important to know because it's what's happening matters, especially to not just to those who are involved, but also in terms of what U.S. foreign policy looks like. If this becomes our new normal, you know, I think it's going to be a real, a real long term problem. Yeah. And with that, thank you for listening. This has been an episode of Rethinking Politics. You can find us on all of the major podcasting apps or on YouTube. You can reach out to us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com or you can visit our website at rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com where you can support us via Patreon. Thanks and have a wonderful day.